Hi, this is Mike Adams. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, it's Adams on Agriculture. Produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host, Mike Adams. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Adams on Agriculture. Thanks for joining us today and letting us be part of your day as we wrap up the week. Of course, China very much in the news as the president says he'll put more tariffs on China starting September 1, a 10% tariff. And uh, where does that leave the trade talks and chances of a trade deal? We're going to talk about that here in just a moment with Dave Salmonson with the American Farm Bureau Federation. Also coming up today, the biodiesel industry reacts to EPA Administrator Wheeler's defense of their small refinery exemptions to the RFS and EPA Wheeler's uh, claims that uh, they are not hurting biofuels demand. We'll talk with Kurt Kavarik with the National Biodiesel Board, get his reaction to that. Charlie Arnott, CEO for the Center for Food Integrity, will join us today. We're going to talk about plant-based meat products, fake meat, imitation meat, whatever you want to call it, cell-based products. They are getting a lot of attention. They seem to be uh, gaining uh, traction in the marketplace. We're going to talk with Charlie about that to look a little closer at this. Is it a fad? Is it here to stay? We're going to talk with Charlie Arnott with the Center for Food Integrity about that. And then Ryan Finley, CEO of the American Soybean Association, will join us to talk about the situation with China as well as efforts to get USMCA passed. Trade is where we start things off today with Dave Salmonson, Senior Director of Congressional Relations for the American uh, Farm Bureau Federation. Dave, thank you for joining us. Uh, what's your take on this news that the president plans a 10% tariff uh, in addition to what's already in place on China starting September 1st? Well, it certainly came quickly on the heels of both uh, Ambassador Lighthizer and Treasury Secretary Mnuchin coming back from China. They were just there earlier in the week to start the discussions, you might say the reset of negotiations uh, with China the ones that had broken down at the end of April. You know, in a sense, uh, in a real way, this is a resumption of what had been going on a few months ago. Remember this whole process to put tariffs on the remaining Chinese imports that we don't have tariffs on yet, the $300 billion, began in early June. Uh, The comment process was going on. People had been submitting comments about it. And then it was all suspended. Uh, when uh, President Trump and President Xi met uh, at the G20 summit in Osaka, Japan, at the end of June. Uh, And that was for the reason that we're going to restart the negotiations. So now the fact the president's saying, um, look, I intend at the beginning of September to impose a 10% tariff um, really is a, you know, you might say is a progression from that. We can all speculate on the reasons. Uh, why he might be doing it now. Um, is it to pressure the Chinese? Was he not uh, impressed with the report he got back from uh, the delegation that went to China earlier this week? Uh, you know, we don't know. Um, but that's the reality that, that's out there now and a uh, potential uh, new set of tariffs and uh, maybe uh, some retaliation from China that uh, we may have to deal with in a month's time. We have seen an an increase in the 
tougher rhetoric coming from uh, the U.S. side about these negotiations and claims that China, you know, keeps reneging and, uh, uh, you know, backing out, things like that. And now we see this action. Does this does this tell us that, hey, this is not near a conclusion. It's going to keep going for some time. And, of course, we're also even the president saying that he thinks maybe China's strategy is to wait to see what happens in our presidential election next year. Yeah, well, these these uh, discussions weren't on the fastest of fast tracks anyways. You know, even just coming back earlier this week, the next meeting would have been in early September. So, you know, there's a, a whole month to go by um, and maybe further discussions after that. So there's hard issues, as we all know why they broke up uh, back at the end of April, that it's tough for China to deal with some changes and the way they run their economy, how they deal with foreign businesses that are that are working in China, um, but you know we're focused uh, mostly on the idea of getting back into the Chinese market, starting with China announcing some purchases. That's always been held out there as uh, what agriculture would probably be the most interested in, a sign of goodwill, a sign that the talks were going along. Um, you might say a bit of an early harvest, something that could be agreed to before you had to move on and get agreement on the more tougher and uh, more systemic issues with the Chinese economy, along with tariff reductions. And I think that's the where you might say some of the rub is on this. How much is China willing to announce they'll buy, uh, and how much uh, tariff reduction is the U.S. willing to give? You know, they're going to hold on to some tariffs the U.S. wants to, to uh, as a bit of a guarantee for China carrying through on its commitments. So there's a lot of discussion around that uh, that has yet to happen. You know, maybe we'll see. Look forward to uh, maybe there'll be some uh, more behind-the-scenes discussions through the month of August, and they won't be waiting till September to, to get back together. Uh, all, all to come. There's been speculation throughout. I, I know I, I've raised this question early on in this now little over a year of uh, this uh, trade war with China. Is this reshaping trading partnerships and patterns moving forward? Is this going to be similar to what the Russian grain embargo uh, in the late 70s did, kind of reshaping things, boosting our competitors and, and things like that? Do you see that happening? Do you see the trade order for the future significantly changed because of this? Well, I think you're starting to see the businesses involved, of course, in uh, exporting, uh, looking for other markets. Certainly they uh, want to be back in the China market. What we saw over the last year, just particularly with soybeans, um, more was sold to the European countries. Um, some more went to like countries like South Korea, Japan, you know, a lot of other countries around the world, the you know, the exporters, the marketers uh, really went after some markets to try to try to sell product. Now, will that be more aggressive going forward? You know, we don't know. Um, we had an opportunity, of course, to sell a large variety, a large volume of product to one buying country. Uh, and that was really good business. You know, we want all that business back and to grow that business. But there may be a further attention some of the smaller markets, some of the markets capable of development. So, you know, if you're selling all U.S. ag, say you're selling to a market that buys $500 million, even up to a billion from us, they're not in one year going to turn around and buy another billion dollars. They just don't have the capacity to do that. So 
it takes an awful lot of smaller markets to make up for a big market, doesn't it? And uh, But that'll some of the uh, work, I'm sure, that the export promotion folks at USDA, working through all the organization, the organizations that work on this, companies are probably taking a real hard look at. Dave, as always, thanks for the update, and uh, we'll stay in touch and uh, see how this uh, plays out. Thank you very much. Okay. Dave Salmonson, Senior Director, Congressional Relations for the American Farm Bureau Federation. Sure looks like a deal with China, as of today, looks farther away than closer, uh, even after over a year of these uh, negotiations. Uh, Sure seems like a, a long ways to go to get a final deal done. Well, we're going to talk about the EPA's defense of their waiver policy for the RFS. We're going to talk with Kurt Gavarik with the National Biodiesel Board next on AOA. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Don't go away. More Adams on Agriculture coming right up. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture from the American Ag Network. We're excited to explore the topics that make a difference to agriculture. The Farm Bill, immigration reform, reducing regulations, trade, new technology, as well as infrastructure and health care. Through the year, Adams on Agriculture will originate on location from several major national meetings and events. Subscribe to the show's podcast at AmericanAgNetwork.com. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture from the American Ag Network. Recently on Adams on Agriculture. And let's talk weather with DTM meteorologist Mike Pomerino. Mike, that was quite a heat wave that rolled across the country. It was. It, uh, you know, clearly if you're going to get something like this, it's going to happen in midsummer, and uh, it did. And, you know, with all that moisture we've seen uh, during the spring, uh, it just brought those humidity levels just through the roof. So pretty tough to take, but fortunately it is now in the past. Yeah, what's on the backside now of that heat wave? Have an outstanding week of weather with uh, temperatures at or somewhat below normal, and uh, quite a bit of sunshine. Uh, really, not much in the way of any rain this week. Uh, should be a, a, a good week for crop growth uh, in the Midwest, and uh, Lord knows they need it. For the information important to rural America, join us on Adams on Agriculture. Bad theater seats, cheap Halloween masks, my apartment, all things with obstructed views. Add to these large trucks and buses. 18-wheelers and large buses have big blind spots, and like my apartment, they don't always have the best view. Bus and truck drivers deal with blind spots around the entire vehicle. Always take care not to ride alongside or too close behind them. Our roads, our safety. Learn more at sharetheroadsafely.gov. My mom, a breast cancer survivor. The United Breast Cancer Foundation saved her life. Their free breast cancer exam caught the cancer early, and it saved her life. But now the foundation needs your help so they can continue offering free or low-cost breast screening exams, saving more women's lives. Help them by donating your car, whether it's running or not. They'll provide fast, free 24-hour pickup, and you receive a charitable tax deduction, plus the great feeling you'll get knowing your donated car is going to help save more lives. Just call 800-745-3327 to set the wheels in motion. They take cars, trucks, vans, and SUVs, running or not. 
Call 800-745-3327. The United Breast Cancer Foundation needs your help, and your donation could literally save women's lives, helping them catch breast cancer early like they did with my mom. Donate today. 800-745-3327. 800-745-3327. You're listening to AOA Adams on Agriculture. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. EPA Administrator Andrew Wheeler has defended his agency's policy of granting the small refinery waivers to the RFS, the Renewable Fuel Standard, and also says those waivers have not been hurting biofuels demand. Earlier this week, we heard from Jeff Cooper, president and CEO of the Renewable Fuels Association, uh, with his reaction to that, and obviously strong disagreement. I think we'll get that as well from Kurt Kavarik, vice president, federal affairs for the National Biodiesel Board, who joins us now. Kurt, uh, what did you think? What was your reaction when you heard uh, uh, Administrator Wheeler's defense of their waiver policy for the RFS? Yeah, glad to be with you, Mike. Well, I would share the sentiment of uh, Mr. Cooper with Renewable Fuels Association. Um, it's it's pretty unfathomable, unfathomable to believe that Wheeler uh, believes that exempting billions of gallons of obligations from uh, refiners to blend biofuels would not have uh, the, the effective loss of demand for biofuels. And I know the folks in the ethanol industry have made their case, as we have as well with respect to biodiesel. The fact of the matter is our own. I think we just lost Kurt, so we're going to try to get him back. Seems like maybe his, uh, his line dropped off, so we'll try to get him back. But as you could tell, uh, they feel strongly that, uh, in fact, and some say that the biodiesel industry has been hurt even more than the ethanol industry uh, because of these small refinery exemptions that have been granted by the EPA. And um, so, as you could tell, before we lost Kurt, uh, they feel very strongly about this issue as well and strongly disagree with uh, Andrew Wheeler's assessment that those waivers are not hurting biofuels demand. So we're going to try to get um, Kurt back on the line. We lost him there, but hopefully we can get him back and um, continue on with that conversation. Sometimes phone lines just drop out on us. So hopefully we can reconnect with Kurt and get him back on here in just a moment. In the meantime, let's take a look at what's going on elsewhere in the news. We talked about the big news continues to be, of course, uh, President Trump saying he's going to put another 10% uh, weight, uh, tariffs on China. And um, the reaction to that has been strong. We've seen the stock market drop uh, significantly. And, of course, a lot of concerns about now how long could this uh, play out? How long could this go on? Um, doesn't seem like there's an end anywhere nearly. Uh, we think back to a little over a year ago when this started, and the president talked about, 
you know, short-term pain for long-term gain. Well, the short-term pain is starting to turn more into long-term pain. So we'll see when do we start seeing the gain from this. So, all right. Meanwhile, I believe Kurt is back with us. Kurt, are you with us? I am. I'm, I'm sorry about that. No problem. Kurt Kavarik, Vice President, Federal Affairs for the National Biodiesel Board. All right, Kurt, you were saying you strongly disagree with uh, EPA Administrator Wheeler's assessment that the, the small refinery exemptions to the RFS are not hurting biofuels demand. That's right. I mean, the, the EPA sets the volumes that uh, are expected to be met. My industry counts on those to be binding. And when the, the, the EPA retroactively grants exemptions to small refinery exemptions, that means uh, demand for biofuels is, is destroyed. Our, in, our analysis indicates that the refinery exemptions that they've granted over recent years has led to more than 360 million gallons of lost demand, which is a significant uh, portion of our, uh, of our market. And uh, it's been verified in the, independently by an economics professor from the University of Illinois who says the demand loss is even uh, much greater and could be in the billions of dollars going forward if EPA continues to grant these uh, waivers unchecked. So to assert that there's been no demand destruction, uh, you know, that's a talking point straight out of the refiners who have been trying to kill this program for more than 10 years. The, the program's been on the books since 2007. They've, they've understood for more than a decade what their obligation is to comply with the law. And to the fact that this administration with this EPA administrator would facilitate kind of undermining of the program at the expense of domestic uh, biofuels and biodiesel producers and soybean farmers. It, it's, it's hard to imagine that a, that a president that campaigned on, uh, you know, adding value to, to, the, to, the, to the bottom line of America's farmers, upholding the integrity of the renewable fuel standard, recognizing what the renewable fuel standard means in terms of economic development for farmers, it, it, it's, it's, hard to, it's hard to follow. It's hard to understand, and, it, and it's got to stop. I know you're hoping for change and working hard to get them to change that policy, but when the administrator comes out with statements like that, it, it's hard to imagine then that the, that means they're going to make any significant changes to the policy if, if they believe that what they're doing uh, is the right thing and not harming biofuels. How do we expect to see something different, you think, going forward? Well, it would, it would appear that this EPA administrator is dug in and he's, he's content to follow the path that was set by him uh, set for him by Mr. Pruitt, the previous administrator who, who began this this policy. The fact of the matter is, when President Trump was out in Iowa uh, and was on the stage with, with farmers from Iowa and thought that he was going to be greeted wholeheartedly with uh, a, a praise for granting E-15, and he got an earful about these small refiner exemptions, and that led him to say, hey, wait a minute, we need to figure out what's going on here. Why are ExxonMobil and other of uh, some of the largest, most profitable integrated oil companies uh, being granted exemptions. So they're, they're in that process right now. Uh, USDA and Secretary Sonny Perdue gets this issue. He understands the importance of the RFS to the, to the economic vitality of, the, of, of rural America. And so he's, he's going to bat for us. And you've seen there have been a lot of advertising campaigns directed squarely at President Trump. And we, we had our own running uh, to get the message across to him that, you know, while he campaigned and, and ran on and consistently supports upholding the integrity of the renewable fuel standard. The actions by his EPA in granting these small refiner exemptions is uh, is wholly contradictory to that commitment. Well, it seems that no doubt that uh, the message from the 
oil industry has gotten through, at least EPA, it seems like uh, they have uh, Administrator Wheeler's ear, that's for sure. They have a lot of friends and they have a lot of influence. What they don't have is a lot of facts. And so if we're able to get an audience uh, with, the, with the president's staff and with uh, the, the, the key folks within the administration, particularly USDA and others, when they have the facts, they recognize that there is demand destruction. There is no need to continue to grant you know, dozens of these small refinery exemptions. It's time to uphold uh, the statute as written by Congress and that it, the program be a demand driver for biofuels rather than uh, you know, providing these backdoor giveaways and exemptions to, to big oil companies. And as we've talked before, Kurt, uh, the double whammy for your industry, the biodiesel industry, not only these uh, waivers, but the fact that uh, you still don't have the biodiesel tax credit and Congress is on recess uh, now and so and uh, without passing a tax extenders package still, any hopes of when they come back in the fall that maybe something will get done? Yeah, I, I, I think that there was a drive or consideration to, to, to use the uh, debt limit bill that passed just before they left for the August recess as a, as a potential vehicle for tax extenders. Uh, and I think that process got a lot of leadership talking and recognizing that this is a business that needs to get done uh, soon in September. And Senator Grassley, I think, just made comments today or yesterday about the need to, to clear the decks of some of this unfinished business on tax policy, a couple retirement provisions, and I think he's looking for any vehicle he can. We've got strong champions in the House, uh, led by Representative Finkenauer from Iowa, 59 co-sponsors on her bill that would extend the biodiesel tax credit. So we know the support is there. It's just a matter of getting a Congress that has been unable to do a lot of big things uh, so far in this Congress uh, to, to wrap their head around the importance of this, the urgency of it, and the need to get it done early uh, upon their return. So you need the right vehicle to hook it to, right? That's right. And with the September 30th deadline to fund the government, that, pro that provides an opportunity. Uh, we think there are a handful of other vehicles that this could, to, uh, could ride with. And the fact of the matter is there are a lot of um, un unfinished items that there's strong bipartisan support for. Uh, so there, a, deal is, a deal is certainly possible. It's just getting the will of the folks at the table to, to come together and, and, and strike the deal. All right, Kurt, thank you for the update, and uh, we will uh, continue to monitor this. Hopefully uh, uh, some change in policies from EPA on the, the waivers, and uh, we'll see what happens with the tax extenders. Thank you for being with us. Very glad to be with you, Mike. Thank you. Kurt, Kurt Kavarik, Vice President, Federal Affairs for the National Biodiesel Board. Well, we're hearing more and more about uh, these... Um, Imitation meat products and Burger King rolling out their plant-based impossible burgers nationwide. Is this a fad or is this uh, going to be with us uh, moving forward? We're going to talk with Charlie Arnott with the Center for Food Integrity next on AOA. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Don't go away. More Adams on Agriculture coming right up. Recently on Adams on Agriculture, there was a study released recently comparing organic milk with conventional milk, and the study says and claims that uh, the non-organic milk tested positive for pesticides, illegal antibiotics, and growth hormones. When I get reaction to that from the dairy industry, joining us now is the Senior Vice President, Regulatory Affairs for the National Milk Producers Federation, Clay Detlefson. Clay, thank you for joining us. Uh, what do you make of this study? At this point, we don't buy it. We don't believe that the results that have been provided 
are accurate. They fly in the face of government test results that have been going on for years and years and years, and it's just very unusual that these results could be valid. So we're questioning the methodology and the proficiency of the folks that uh, perform the testing. For the information important to rural America, join us on Adams on Agriculture. Time now for a market check here on Adams on Agriculture. I'm Rusty Halverson from the American Ag Network. China on Friday threatened retaliation if President Trump's planned tariff hikes go into effect. China's government accusing Trump of violating his June agreement with President Xi Jinping to revive negotiations. Trump rattled the markets with Thursday's announcement of 10% tariffs on $300 billion of Chinese imports effective September 1st. Washington and Beijing are locked in a battle over complaints that China steals or pressures companies to hand over technology. October lean hog futures at the Merck rising today after dropping 15% since last Friday's close. November soybeans fell for the third session in a row on Thursday. The bean market remains under the influence of a head-and-shoulders top formation on the daily chart. Corn remains under the bearish influence of a confirmed head-and-shoulders top pattern on the daily charts as well. We're bouncing on this Friday, an hour into the day. December corn up five and three quarters at 408 and a quarter. November soybeans up five and a quarter, 870 and a half. Chicago wheat September up eight and a quarter at 484. Kansas City September up two and three quarters at 418 and a half. Minneapolis spring wheat September up a penny and three quarters at 520 and a quarter cent. Livestock at the Merck, Lean Hogs, October, $1.35 higher, $68.82. Live cattle a mix, August near unchanged, up $0.07 cents at $107.95 per hundredweight. October down 45 at $108.27. Feeder cattle, August contract down 95 at $140.27. November at $140.10, down $1.57. On Wall Street, the Dow down 184 points. NASDAQ composite down 101. S&P down 24. Crude oil, $1.48 higher in New York. You're listening to Adams on Agriculture. I'm Rusty Halverson for the American Ag Network. 180 over 111, and I had a stroke. When I woke up, I couldn't speak or walk. 145 over 92, and then I had a heart attack. 182 over 100, and I had a heart attack and a cardiac arrest, and then a stroke. Everything changed. It felt like my life was over. This is what high blood pressure sounds like. You might not feel its symptoms, but the results from a heart attack or stroke are far from invisible or silent. 150 over 90, and I had a stroke. If I would have followed a treatment plan, I would not be in this situation. 180 over 110, and I had a stroke. And I'm 33, so I never see this coming. If you've come off your treatment plan, get back on it. Or talk with your doctor to create an exercise, diet, and medication plan that works for you. Go to loweryourhbp.org. I had to tell everything's changed at this time. Brought to you by the American Heart Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council. Hi, this is Mike Adams. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now back to Mike Adams. Well, Burger King plans to uh, make its uh, plant-based Impossible Burger or Impossible Whopper, if you will, available nationwide. 
uh, starting here in a few days of next week. Um, now, of course, they had a test run of this in the St. Louis area. It is said that those restaurants saw traffic outperform national averages by 18.5%. And um, we've seen growing interest in these plant-based uh, uh, sandwiches. We have seen uh, investment in the companies that make them growing. Uh, so there's there's a lot of interest, there's a lot of attention being paid to them right now, but is this just a fad, something that'll f- fizzle out, or is this here to stay? We're going to talk about that and what's going on uh, with this uh, new product in the marketplace with Charlie Arnott, CEO for the Center for Food Integrity. Charlie, thank you for being with us. I've had people that have tried them. I have not, but I have, I have people tell me, well, they... They taste pretty close to a burger. It's hard to hard to tell the difference between uh, these uh, imitation burgers and the and the real thing. If that's the case, have they really got a hold of something here that's going to continue to grow in popularity? You think? Well, I think that's the the sixty four thousand or sixty four million dollar question, Mike. And I think there are a number of factors that are really playing into this. Um, one of those is the fact that we're seeing a, a real shift in millennial and Gen Z consumers as they really become purpose-driven consumers. One of the things we've talked about for decades in agriculture is um, do these trends that we see, the social concerns or the social issues related to the environment or animal welfare or other issues, do they actually impact purchasing? And for these consumers, the answer is clearly yes. Uh, These are consumers who are more interested not just in what the product tastes like and, and the nutritional value, but in the attributes of how the product was raised and the potential social, environmental, animal welfare impacts. So I think there are a number of things that are kind of converging simultaneously to create this opportunity for meat alternatives and then the opportunity and the challenge for those who are producing uh, meat from animals. And I think that's where we have the opportunity to kind of better understand what's driving it and then how do we engage and respond. Because as you noted, uh, Burger King is now launching this in addition to that, we're, we're seeing uh, OSI, which has been the uh, burger producer and supplier for McDonald's, now begin to produce the Impossible Burger, uh, which means they're planning for bigger and larger distribution using the same channels that, that OSI has used for McDonald's. So this is clearly a trend. It's not just a fad. Uh, where it goes exactly, time will tell. Uh, but I think there are a number of opportunities for animal agriculture as well as opportunities for those who are involved in, in developing and, and selling meat alternatives. Hey, you mentioned McDonald's. Uh, their, their position kind of been they were waiting to see what the response was going to be and let others kind of try it. And obviously, if, if it looks like it's catching on or if there's any success or it's driving or bringing in the, some new business or an increase in business, others are going to follow. Well, you know, it's interesting you mentioned that because White Castle is selling uh, a meat alternative burger. Uh, burger King is selling a meat alternative burger. You clearly see that now in, in other restaurants as it's being sold. So uh, it would be interesting to see what happens with McDonald's and others if they move in that direction, if there is enough demand, and, and then kind of how that market continues to play out. But I think the, the opportunity those for those of us in animal agriculture is to better understand why? Why is it that purpose-driven consumers are, are moving away from animal protein to these alternatives? And then, more importantly, what can we do to help those consumers understand they can feel the same level of confidence in, and uh, enjoy the burgers, the steaks, the chops, the chicken that they've always jo- enjoyed, 
and feel good about the way those products are produced. So I think that's the opportunity for us is to, to begin to close that gap. And, Mike, we're actually doing a webinar with um, the vice president of alternative proteins for Tyson, head of corporate relations for White Castle, and a person who does consumer research on September 13th from 1 to 2, really just to look into this issue about what's driving these alternatives and uh, encourage you and your listeners to, to go to the CFI website, sign up for that, and participate, because this is something that we're interested in knowing more about from the restaurants, from those who are producing it and processing it, and from those who are researching consumer attitudes as well. I think you hit on the key phrase, feel good. Uh, I've already seen some analysis of these uh, products starting to come out. Some are questioning their health aspects of what's in them. Are they any better or not? Things like that. So they're starting to get some of the scrutiny that will go with the with increased uh, attention and popularity. But here's the, other, the big thing that you touched on. If these consumers are convinced or have convinced themselves or believe in any way that uh, they are helping the planet or themselves or whatever by eating these particular burgers, whether that's true or not, and you can argue facts and things like that, but if they believe it, if they feel good about it, that's going to drive them to uh, to go to those products and stay with them. That's exactly right. And that's why it's really important that we don't try to make this a fact-based or science-based debate because these decisions are not going to be based on facts or science. They're going to be based on emotion. And so how do we make that emotional-based connection again with the consumers who are interested in enjoying meat? Uh, they've not decided to go vegan or go completely away from meat, but they might decide to become more flexitarian. They might decide to try this alternative or try that alternative as a way to continue to buy products that they believe are more closely aligned with their values. And to me, that's the real opportunity is to help them understand that animal agriculture is actually better aligned with their values than perhaps they thought. Uh, that they can be confident that the animals are treated humanely, uh, that we're doing everything we can to protect and actually enhance the environment, uh, that we've got great systems that can, uh, contribute to strong rural communities and continue to reinforce that so they can feel good about the burgers that come from beef cattle, the chicken sandwiches they get that come from farmers, and the chops that come from, from pork producers. That's the opportunity is to be able to compete in that emotional space, not just with science and facts. We're talking with Charlie Arnott, CEO for the Center for Food Integrity. You use the term we're, we're hearing and seeing more, flexitarian. Uh, uh, tell us what group that really uh, applies to. Well, it applies to those individuals who are still interested in enjoying meat uh, but are concerned about meat's impact either on themselves or the planet and therefore choose to opt out or to opt for less meat. We're also seeing more blended products. We're seeing the introduction of sausages and other products that have meat, but also have other protein sources like lentils or beans or some other kind of legume uh, that's blended in there as a way to give people the same kind of taste and eating experience, but to produce, but to do that with less meat. So it's, a, it's an interesting mix where people are choosing to say, I'm going to eat less meat, I'm going to try other products, and you're also seeing the marketplace respond with products that contain less meat from animals and more other sources of protein, but still include meat. So these are products that are not intended for the vegan or vegetarian, but really are intended and targeted toward the flexitarian who's interested in enjoying meat, but also is concerned about its impact on other elements. Wow. Uh, you know, you got sometimes you can get caught in a generational mindset here, and, and some of us who uh, are more traditional may say, how can they 
think this way or why would this appeal to them but you've got to be you got to be a, you may not agree with their mindset but you got to understand it and acknowledge it right well i think that's absolutely right i mean if you think about the companies that are are selling animal protein that have also invested and are selling other kinds of protein uh, for them, it's not a, it's not a philosophical decision. It's a business decision. Mm-hmm. Um, they will continue to be suppliers and sellers of protein, and will will give consumers what they're interested in having. So I think that's the opportunity again is to engage in that conversation. And as you noted, to be careful about assuming that everyone should view the world through our lens, uh, because that's not how it works. But what can we do to better understand what are the drivers of that purpose-driven consumer, and how do we better align animal agriculture with those drivers? I was at a restaurant with my family here just uh, last weekend, and there on the menu uh, in the burger section, you know, there was uh, uh, that option of the plant-based burger. And, you know, if somebody's just going through that quickly, they may not even realize, they could order it without even realizing it, or just the way it was worded made it sound, I'm sure, appealing to some. Now, I used it as an opportunity to educate my granddaughter about the two, but uh, I I can see where that's going to catch on or catch some people and, and make them at least want to try it. Yeah, I think that's right. And I don't think it's ever going to be an either-or. I certainly don't think that, that we're going to see meat eliminated from menus, except in those very special occasions where that's a target. Uh, I think we're going to see more diversity across the menu and more diversity in terms of what is offered. Uh, but I clearly believe that meat alternatives will, will take a growing segment of the market, exactly how much market is open for debate. And uh, you've heard people talk about 10 or 15 percent or 25 percent, depending upon whose analysis you read. But I don't think anyone is predicting that these will replace animal agriculture. But 10 or 15 percent is still a significant segment, Mm -hmm. and a a segment that animal agriculture needs to pay attention to. Yeah, when you already have tight margins, that that is pretty significant. Okay, real quick again, your seminar, your webinar coming up, uh, where can people get that information again? Yep, they can go to the foodintegrity.org website. The webinar is on September 13th from 1 to 2. We've got the Vice President of Alternative Proteins from Tyson. Uh, Vice President of Corporate Relations for White Castle, and a cultural anthropologist who will all talk about what's driving the trend for meat alternatives. Yeah, I, I encourage people to check that out. I think this is something we need to be very uh, aware of and uh, get as much information on as we can. Charlie, as always, thank you very much. Mike, thanks for the opportunity. Have a great day. Take care. Charlie Arnott, CEO for the Center for Food Integrity. Uh, these meat alternatives uh, getting a lot of attention right now and gaining in uh, some popularity, getting some growth in certain markets. But uh, you can't just dismiss it. You have to be aware of it. And uh, as Charlie said, see the opportunity uh, that the, the livestock industry, the meat industry has uh, in telling its story uh, at this time when consumers are looking for information and checking things out and curious about these things. All right, up next, Ryan Finley, CEO of the American Soybean Association, joins us to talk about this China trade situation. Stay with us on AOA. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Don't go away. More Adams on Agriculture coming right up. No word in the English language is less convincing than probably. Are you sure we should get matching tattoos on our first date? Sure. Um, We'll probably stay together. Probably? (laughs) It's been 23 minutes since I ate. I can probably swim. Uh, you should wait 30 minutes. Mm, Okay, now tell me what to do. Cannonball! Cramp! Oh, I have a cramp. 
I can probably hit the green from here. Probably. Can I get a mulligan? Ready to go? Hey, are you sure you're okay to drive? Yeah, I'm pretty sober. Yeah, I'm probably okay. Probably okay isn't okay, especially when it comes to drinking and driving. If you're drinking, call a cab, a car, or a friend. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A message brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. Wake up and text. Text and eat. Text and catch the bus. Text and miss your stop. Wait, 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 wait. Text and be late to work. Sorry, I'm late. Text and work. Text and pretend to work. Text and act surprised when someone calls you out for not working. <clears throat> Who, me? Text and meet up with a friend you haven't seen in forever. Hi. Oh, hey. Text and complain that they're on their phone the whole time. <sighs> Text and listen to them complain that you're on your phone the whole time. Ugh. Text and whatever. But when you get behind the wheel, give your phone to a passenger. Put it in the glove box. Just don't text and drive. Visit StopTextsStopRex.org. A public service announcement brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. You may not realize how important three letters can be. For a patient who needs type A, B, or O blood, these letters can mean life. But there simply aren't enough people giving blood. Every two seconds, someone in the U.S. needs it, but only about 3% of the population donates. Without more donors, hospitals may not have the blood needed to save lives. That's why the American Red Cross needs people to help restore the A's, B's, and O's that are depleting each day. When you make your appointment to donate blood at redcrossblood.org forward slash missing types, you can help give strength to kids, parents, and grandparents who face life and death challenges. From cancer patients to accident survivors, waiting for critical surgeries, your generosity can give someone more life. Don't wait until the letters A, B, and O are missing from hospital shelves. You are the missing type patients need. Visit redcrossblood.org forward slash missing types or call 1-800-RED-CROSS to make your donation appointment today. The Alzheimer's Association and the Ad Council present the story of Cynthia and Ed. My mother was always very active and independent, and she was familiar with her neighborhood. But one day, out of the blue, she stopped at the stop sign for much longer than usual. And uh, she didn't know whether she should go forward or, or turn or just stay at the stop sign. She wasn't even really sure where she was at. She was very concerned. It was very unsettling for her. It's important for you to talk to someone about it, to bring the family in on it. I felt so much better after my son told me, Mom, I don't want you to worry or be afraid. I'll be there for you, and we'll figure it out. When something feels different, it could be Alzheimer's. Now is the time to talk. Visit alz.org slash ourstories to learn more. A message from the Alzheimer's Association and the Ad Council. I spend a lot of time in the garage, but even more time in the rain, sleet, and mud. In 95, I helped tow your moving trailer. In 05, I helped you get out of a ditch. Yeah, 
I know I'm a bit rusty, and sadly in 09, it was sparks from me. Your handy chains dragging behind your truck that accidentally started a wildfire. Sparks from dragging chains can start a wildfire. Spark a change, not a wildfire. Visit SmokeyBear.com. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service, your state forester, and the Ad Council. Only you can prevent wildfires. You're listening to AOA Adams on Agriculture. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. President Trump's announcement that he plans to put more tariffs on China starting September 1st seems to be a step backwards in the trade negotiations with China and really leaves a lot of questions about when, if and when, are we going to see a deal done with with China. Let's talk about it with Ryan Finley, CEO of the American Soybean Association. Ryan, thank you for being with us. Hard to be real optimistic about a deal anytime soon, unless you're going with the uh, the old saying, it's darkest before dawn, I guess. Uh, it has to get worse before it right. gets better. There but other than that, it's hard to be optimistic. <laughs> you know, there's a for those that text, there's the emoticon with a character just kind of shrugging their shoulders and putting their hands up. And, and I kind of think yesterday when there was the series of four tweets from the president, that was kind of the response, like, man, what, what do we do? And this is tough. So the silver lining within that message was, hey, China, throughout the last six months, has said that they would purchase U.S. agricultural commodities, and they haven't. And so the president is calling them on the carpet for that, which is great. The problem is, I think everybody recognizes this trade war that we hoped would be resolved um, quickly is going to be a long-term trade war, and that's going to weigh on agriculture, it's going to weigh on the U.S. economy, and it's, it's just going to be really difficult for the long term. A few token purchases, but yeah, they, we've not seen those big purchases that we heard were coming. Right, that's exactly right. And and so, you know, they, our, our comment or our thought was that based on everything that we have been told since last December, December of 18, China was going to buy around 20 million metric tons, and we're less than half of that. So if we could um, get closer to that 20 million, that would be great if we could see um, further purchases into next year. But the reality is Brazil is pumping out soybeans and China's buying them, and even with that, uh, African swine fever weighs on the entire soy complex globally, and and so that's going to continue to be a challenge as well. It's yeah, they are they're moving in different directions uh, to 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 source uh, their soybeans, and when we look to the future, then for U.S. soybean sales, hopefully China will be part of the picture moving forward. But it's starting to look like it might not be what it once was even if this is resolved so uh, you know we hear about market development trying to develop other markets but the the reality there is it takes a lot of those smaller markets to make up for the loss of a big one like china it absolutely does you're absolutely right but this is so i think this is really the hard part i mean there's not the ag economy is not doing well resources are limited what do you do we want this instant fix and the reality is it took us 30, 40 years to develop that market in China. 
And so we're talking long-term market development. I mean, where are the countries today that we should be engaged with? And I think the soy industry, whether it's United Soybean Board and, and the American Soybean Association working with U.S. Soybean Export Council, those are the three national groups that are really focused on on international market development together. How do we do that? It's not always an easy sell to say, well, I can't move your bushel of beans today, but I don't want us to be in this problem or in this situation five and 10 and 15 years from now. So today we need to focus on the market development. That's It's a tough message right now, but it's also critically important that we, we invest in that market access. Yeah, it's when you're struggling right now, it's hard to uh, think about 10 years down the road because you're just wondering if you're going to get there uh, and keep, you know, with your operation. So that is a real challenge. We're talking with Ryan Finley, CEO of the American Soybean Association. Ryan, it sounds like we may get a deal, though, with Japan. What does that mean for soybeans? Well, I think from a, a soybean standpoint, just a, a pure whole bean, it's it's a great market, but it's not it's not going to be a replacement to China. I think the beauty of Japan is really on the animal protein, and and some would say that's even better here because we can raise the soybeans, we can process them here, we can feed them to animals, and then we can export those the, the animal protein from here over to Japan in the form of pork or some other products, and I think that would be. That would be a win-win for U.S. agriculture on a lot of fronts. So Japan, for us, would really be the strong play on the animal utilization side and, and being able to export animal protein. Yeah, we need a win and trade, and we need a positive. The <laughs> other, of course, we're, we're waiting for USMCA, the Congre- Congress now on recess. Uh, this is a real good opportunity when they're back home in their districts to talk uh, with our members of Congress about USMCA. That's right. I mean, we have to complete this. We have to finish it up. I think there's a lot of education that's going on. Talking to your member of Congress to say we need to have, we need to have certainty. We need to, we, we can't, it's the do no harm. We need to have certainty. We need this North American market. Mexico and Canada have been great trading partners for agriculture. It's been beneficial for U.S. ag. And let's get that wrapped up so that we can focus our attention to Japan, we can look at the EU. Hopefully, we can make progress in China. And then earlier this week, the president said we're, we're going to start looking at a free trade agreement with Brazil. And I think that, that one was a little out of left field. And, and I think agriculture is still trying to surmise what the benefit could be for us. But, um, you know, there's a lot up in the air when it comes to trade. Yeah, that one's kind of a head-scratcher, isn't it? <laughs> I, sometimes I don't know. Yeah, yeah. That that one we'll try we'll try to figure that one out, but uh, we'll do that in the days ahead, I guess. Um, all right. So I wish we had better news on China. It kind of makes it seem like just getting this first round of market facilitation payments in this next round, uh, you know, all of a sudden it sounds like maybe there will be another one and another one after that, perhaps. Well, I think those are going to be the big questions. So uh, the message that we deliver is. We view this as short, mid, and long-term problems. So the short-term problem right now is you have really depressed prices, and farmers need a bridge to get from where they're at to the next to the next season. So hopefully the the pricing pricing will be better, and farm economics will be better. And so that's where the market facilitation program comes in. And this year's has three tranches. So if you think of MFP or this market facilitation 2.0 as three parts to it: one now and two later this year. Yeah, it looks like maybe those two uh, will be in play. We were hoping that trade deal would get done. Wouldn't need those, but uh, kind of looking shaky right. now. All right. Good to talk with you, Ryan. Thank you. 
Thanks, Mike. Take care. Ryan Finley, CEO of the American Soybean Association. As we wrap it up for the day and for the week, have a great weekend, everyone. Hope you'll join us again on Monday on AOA. Hi, this is Mike Adams. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Most of us like to be out in the sun. That's why sunscreen and other safety measures are key to protecting your skin from aging and cancer. The FDA recommends using a sunscreen with an SPF of 15 or higher. Also, look for broad spectrum on the label. That means both harmful ultraviolet A and B rays are blocked. Remember, SPF plus broad spectrum equal healthy fun in the sun. Visit www.fda.gov sunscreen for more information. A message from the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. Over the years, you've brought them into your home. You were prescribed opioids after the C-section and after dad's back injury. They helped when you were in pain and you held on to them just in case. But did you know holding on to unused opioids puts your family at risk? Trouble with opioids can start at home with unused medicines such as pills, patches, and syrups. You can remove the risk and protect your family. Find out how at www.fda.gov slash drug disposal. Sometimes life is wonderful, and sometimes it's not. Cherish the good, but always be prepared for life's challenges. At Private Healthcare, we provide the peace of mind you deserve. With Private Healthcare, you'll get the coverage you want and healthcare you need. If your employer doesn't supply healthcare coverage and you don't qualify for Medicare or Medicaid, you need to give us a call right now. Private healthcare is private health insurance for ages 65 and under with medical, dental, vision, and even prescription coverage. When life comes at you unexpectedly, you need to be ready. And health insurance is your financial safety net. If you're looking for health coverage at the best price and your annual household income is 35000 or more, give us a call at 800-664-2612. That's 800-664-2612. 800-664-2612.